Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, and welcome to the Rachman Review. I'm Gideon Rachman, Chief Foreign Affairs Commentator of the Financial Times. In this week's podcast, we'll be focusing on China and what China can tell us about coming out of a coronavirus lockdown. My guests this week are two of the FT's senior correspondents covering China. Yuan Yang is our Deputy Beijing Bureau Chief, and James King is our Global China Editor. We talk about how quickly China can emerge from lockdown and whether the coronavirus is forcing a fundamental change in China's relationship with the outside world. Reports of a strange new pneumonia-like virus that had emerged in the Chinese city of Wuhan first began to circulate in the international media in January. We're going to begin here with the outbreak of a mystery virus in China that now has the World Health Organization on edge. At least four people have died and hundreds more... On January 23rd, Wuhan, a city of 11 million people, was sealed off from the outside world. It became the first city in the world to be locked down because of the coronavirus. By early March, the pandemic had clearly spread to Europe and countries began to do what was once unimaginable, ordering their citizens to stay at home. Prime Minister of Italy, Giuseppe Conti, extended its emergency lockdown across the country on March the 9th. Violators could be sent to jail or fined. Française, Français, mes chers compatriotes, People in France were strictly policed about when they could leave their houses. While other countries in Europe were restricting movement, some were at first more reluctant to lock things down. Boris Johnson advised British citizens to wash their hands. I want to stress that for the vast majority of the people of this country, uh, we should be going about our business as In countries across Asia, mask wearing has now become standard practice. But Donald Trump has been reluctant to adopt the practice, even as coronavirus spreads inside the White House. I think uh, wearing a face mask as I greet presidents, prime ministers, dictators, kings, queens, I don't know, somehow I don't see it for myself. I just, I just, uh, maybe I'll change my mind. Now, almost four months since Wuhan was locked down, some 250,000 people around the world have died from the coronavirus, and the pandemic is still raging. But China, the country where the coronavirus started, also claims to be the first to control it. As the pandemic's raged in the US and Europe, there's inevitably been less world attention paid to the internal situation inside China itself. Though in recent days, there have been reports of the virus returning in clusters to Wuhan, what happens in China is still of global significance. It will tell us a lot about the long-term economic, social and political impact of COVID-19. So when I got my FT colleagues on the line from China, I started by asking Yuan Yang how completely the lockdown has now been lifted. 
So the last city to relax its lockdown measures was Beijing. And just over a week ago, Beijing decided to stop quarantining people arriving into the city from outside, which basically means that for most practical purposes, we can travel domestically without much hindrance in China. And if you go out on the streets, especially for um, cities outside of the capital, which has been the most conservative about its lockdown measures, I mean, here in Sichuan, um, the southern province where I am right now, people are really behaving as if the epidemic is completely over. So you can go out to a restaurant, you can go out to a bar and so on, and there's no sense of risk, is there? That's right. I would say different people have different levels of caution. And certainly if you go on, for example, government transport like a bus, um, or on a train, you'll see people wearing masks. And in fact, you'll see uh, the bus conductor will be telling people who aren't wearing masks to put them on. But by and large, it's more kind of soft social policing rather than direct enforcement of the lockdown, as we've seen, for example, in the UK. Outside of Wuhan, the kind of epicenter of the outbreak, there was never a central government diktat to not leave your house in China. And so the funny thing in Beijing is that for the last four months, we've had in some ways the longest semi-lockdown period, but we've also had a very light semi-lockdown in Beijing. And James, I mean, how much economic damage has this done to China? How deep is the recession going to be? Well, the epidemic that hit China really started to get going in January has had a huge impact on the Chinese economy in the first quarter of the year. The GDP growth rate was down 6.8% by official reckoning. But since then, with the economy kind of getting back on track, it's looking like there is a fairly broad-based recovery. Most factories are now getting back up to full capacity. The number of cars on the roads is rising again. People are beginning to travel. You've seen, again, thousands and thousands of Chinese tourists at tourist hotspots last weekend. So things are getting back to normal. I think most analysts think that in the second quarter of the year, barring any huge second wave outbreaks, you should see GDP growth in just positive territory, I'd say. And yet China, obviously, it's the world's largest exporter and most of its largest export markets, the United States and so on, are themselves in lockdown. Presumably, that must be an enormous problem as they try to get going again. That's definitely an enormous problem. And it's a big problem for investment as well. It's not only trade that's being hit. Investment has been absolutely clobbered. In fact, new figures out from the Rhodium Group, a think tank, says that in the first quarter of the year, Chinese investments going over to the US were down to about 200 million US dollars that's down from an average quarterly total of two billion US dollars last year. And we're seeing the same kind of hit for US investments going into China. So although China is clawing its way out of the aftermath of the epidemic, it's going to take a long time before China starts to recapture the type of 6% plus growth rate that it had before this hit. And that problem is exemplified by the woes of Foxconn, which is one of Apple's biggest assemblers in southern China. In the first few weeks of the epidemic, they had a big problem getting their workers back because, of course, many had gone back to their family homes and couldn't physically get back to the factories. And so it took a lot of effort to try to get all those workers back to the factory. Then by the time people got back to the factory, there were no orders coming in from abroad. And so the number of workers they needed was much lower. So then they had to send a lot of workers out again. So you see... Chinese factories, businesses that are just recovering from the epidemic are now being hit by the decline in external demand. 
When you're covering the government's reaction in Beijing, do you get the sense that they're now confident that they're on top of this epidemic, or are they still very nervous of a second wave? It's a funny thing, because on the one hand, there are clear signs of confidence in relaxing the quarantine measures, for example, in Beijing, and letting people go in and out of the city at will. That's a very strong mark of confidence. And secondly, of course, in calling the annual so-called two sessions, which is the biggest legislative event of the year. And for that, which will happen in just over a week, there'll be thousands of parliamentary delegates coming to the capital city from all parts of China. And you can imagine, quite aside from the size of the gathering, just the amount of travel involved could be a risk if there is anybody who's contagious in that group. The Beijing government is trying to signal confidence and especially signal business optimism. But on the other hand, it's also trying to tell people we can't just let everything loose just yet. And there's the further question of what the government might do if there's a second wave of new infections. And there was some alarm earlier this week in the city of Wuhan, which reported its first cluster of new symptomatic cases since early April. There were five cases in in the same residential compound. Now, bearing in mind that's five cases in a city of 11 million that's still a very small relative size. But what the government plans to do in response to that is test all 11 million residents for the coronavirus and find out if there are any still hidden asymptomatic cases or symptomatic people who don't know that they have the coronavirus. And James, how deep a crisis do you think this represents for China in its relationship with the outside world? We've had these reports that there was a secret report to the top levels of government saying this was the deepest crisis in China's relations with the outside world since the Tiananmen Square massacre of 1989. Yes, I think that type of hyperbole is for once justified. I think in terms of the all-important relationship with the United States, we really are in pretty much uncharted territory here. A lot of respected observers, Chinese and American, are saying that this represents the worst ebb in relations since 1979, when the US and China established diplomatic relations. But more than that, I think the problem is that there doesn't seem to be any break on the very vituperative language which is going forward between the US and China. It seems like we might possibly be sort of on the brink of some kind of a Cold War dynamic between the US and China. There is, of course, this very strong and deep commercial relationship, both in terms of U.S. companies that have invested in China and also the bilateral trade going back and forth, about 370,000 Chinese students that study at U.S. colleges, and the fact that some of the big American companies like GM make more of their product, in the case of GM, it's cars, in China than they do back in the U.S. So there really is an awful lot that could be sacrificed if the U.S.-China relationship unravels completely. But we are actually at the moment at a stage which is unprecedented over the last 40 years of engagement between the two countries. And it's very tough to know how both sides can put this relationship back on track. What's the reaction in public opinion so far as it can be gauged in China to this sharp deterioration in relationships with the United States. Is there a sense in which any anger that might have been directed at the government in Beijing or most of that anger is now more focused on the outside world or was that too simple? I think that's to some extent true in the same way that it's easy to blame others for your own misfortunes. Directing any negative sentiment towards the US is something that you can see happening in Chinese propaganda as much as you can see in the White House and President Trump in particular directing anger towards China and calling the coronavirus 
the Chinese virus is a way of also whipping up anger towards an external enemy. And if you watch a lot of television, as my grandparents do, as it happens to be who I'm staying with right now, then you'll see endless kind of scenes on state media of the catastrophe that the epidemic has wrought in the US and in the UK. And the message takeaway from that is that China is the safest country in the world and that Western governments haven't gotten their act together. And the funny thing is, there is some truth to that. And I think that message has, I think, bolstered a lot of confidence in the Chinese government domestically. But James, of course, you're in Hong Kong, which has had a very different political culture and has had a year essentially of open revolt in the streets against the relationship with Beijing. How has that been affected? Because I've seen some reports that even despite the lockdown and the pandemic, demonstrations are reviving in Hong Kong. That's right. It looks as if the demonstrations that characterized Hong Kong life for much of last year are now beginning to start again. The pandemic has pretty much left Hong Kong now. We don't have that many cases at all. And so the demonstrators are coming back out onto the streets, creating a new headache for China. At the same time, China's relations with Taiwan have taken a real tumble during the pandemic. There's been a lot of tension between those two places as well. So I think on China's periphery, we have seen the pandemic really exacerbating some of the tensions that existed before. And do you think the mainland government has the capability or the the kind of attention span now to focus on Hong Kong and Taiwan, or is it too busy trying to restore the economy and to restore the health of the country. You would have thought that with the worst economic performance during a quarter of the year since the Cultural Revolution, which is what happened in the first quarter, and strenuous attempts to get the economy back on track, plus a US-China relationship that's, as I said, deteriorated to its worst point since 1979, that the Chinese Communist Party would have its hands full. But I think there are clear signs that it's also taking a new approach to Hong Kong, a new tougher approach to Hong Kong. There was the arrest recently of the so-called ringleaders of the demonstrations that took place here last year. And there are signs also of, you know, a tougher approach to Taiwan as well. So it may well be that this coronavirus pandemic really puts China onto a much more hardline attitude towards the outside world, towards the West, but also towards what it sees as unruly elements within its own territory. And just to finish, when you look ahead, I mean, it's been an unbelievably unpredictable year, and I'm sure it will continue to be. So this may be an unanswerable question. But when you look ahead to the next few months, you'll try to identify themes that you think are going to be important to follow, what are you looking at as China struggles to come out of the pandemic? A very immediate concern for myself and my colleagues in Beijing as foreign journalists in China is how much the ramping up of tensions between the US and China will affect the ability of the foreign press to do reporting here. There are already a number of journalists who are on shortened visas here. And now that the US has increased its measures against Chinese journalists shortening their visas in the US, we are very concerned that there might be significant countermeasures taken against American or other foreign journalists in Beijing. So I think the first answer to your question is we hope that we will still be here by the end of the year. 
The second part is that when it comes to the economy, as James has said, the Chinese economy in the first quarter took a significant beating. And there's a very a difficult balance for the government to walk between letting everything open up very quickly and then also avoiding a second wave of infections, especially when it comes to whether to let foreign nationals back into China or even to increase the amount of flights between China and the rest of the world. Because for the last month and a half, foreign nationals have not been able to re-enter the country, even if they have valid visas and residence permits. That in itself is going to have an impact on foreign investment in China and on foreign business in China, which does drive a significant amount of domestic growth and, and innovation. So this may well be the year that foreign businesses ask themselves, is China the right place for us? And if not China, then how do we manage to reduce our reliance on the world's second biggest economy? And James, just to finish then, I mean, the last question, your global China editor, you've covered China for many years, during which globalization and China's place in globalization has really defined the story. Do you think we're coming to the end of that era? Personally, I think we are coming to the end of that era. And the era really has been of enormous benefit to the outside world. I mean, China has contributed to global growth for the last two decades at least. And in recent years, it's been contributing about 30% of global growth. And a lot of the dynamism that we've seen in the Chinese economy has been due to the fact that the global economy around it has remained open to Chinese exports, huge inflows of investments. There's been lots of transfers of technology and know-how from the outside world to China. But what's happening now, I fear, is that this very rocky relationship between China and the U.S., kind of tearing apart the underpinnings that led to the huge success that China's enjoyed over certainly the last two decades and probably more than that. So we may well be coming to the end of globalization 1.0, you know, the type of globalization that we've seen for the last three, four decades. What could replace it, though, is a kind of two-speed world. So countries that have good relations with China, perhaps trading you know, more freely with China, and then countries that do not have good relations with China, such as the US and much of the West, starting to feel the chill in their commercial relationship and suffering a hit to their growth rates because of that. Okay, well, with that thought, we'll have to leave it there. Thank you both very much for joining me. Thanks to Yuan Yang in Sichuan and soon to be back in Beijing and to James King in Hong Kong. That was Yuan Yang and James King ending this edition of the Rachman Review. And if you could spare a few moments, we'd love to hear from you about what you think about the show and how it can improve. We're running a survey, which you can find at ft.com slash Rachman Survey. You might also like to subscribe to the FT's Coronavirus Business Update, a level-headed expert email briefing on how the pandemic's affecting global markets, business, and the workplace. Visit ft.com slash Rachman Review COVID to sign up for free access for 30 days. And please join us again next week. You can find us in all the usual podcast apps. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.